afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Inside the Writer Studio is also proud to be an affiliate of Libro FM, the audiobook platform that supports your local independent bookstore. Stay tuned at the end of the podcast for more information on Libro FM and a special offer. My guest today is best-selling novelist Christine Mangan, whose novel Palace of the Drowned has just been published. Christine, welcome to Inside the Writer Studio. Thank you so much for having me. So you had a big success with your previous novel, Tangerine, and as novelists, uh, we are in that inevitable position that no matter what our previous success has been, we are faced once again with that blank white page or screen uh, that begins every project. How do you get into the creative headspace that you need to be in to, to start a new project? I think, you know, for me, the the difficulty is, I think, committing to, to that project. Um, I actually wrote an entire other novel before Palace of the Drowned. And I it was it was basically done. And I kind of had a, a panic where it just didn't feel right. And it didn't feel like the next book that that I wanted to put out. And I ended up kind of scrapping it and then going back. So I think I think I'm always writing and I always have ideas, but my problem is kind of committing to them and deciding, you know, okay, this is the one that that I'm prepared to let out into the world, I guess. What do, what do you think made you feel like this was the one for Palace of the Drown? I don't, you know, I think it's the characters, honestly. This one, um, the characters, Frankie, the the main character, was the first thing that that came to me. And I think she was such a strong character. And I really, really enjoyed her and writing her and spending time with her. Um, I think that's what ultimately kind of felt right. I think with the other one, I didn't have maybe just as much of a connection to to the characters. I think maybe it was more story than characters and um, it just didn't sit well with me. And so this one was the one that started to kind of pull my attention. I read that in your PhD program, you focused on 18th century Gothic literature, which I found fascinating. So then I'm like suddenly looking for a little <laughs> of the Gothic. Um, what, how does that focus, how has that informed your own writing? It definitely is always kind of in the back of my mind, I think. And also, I mean, that's that's kind of what I like to read anyway. Um, but I love Gothic just because there's so much more to it. You know, you have that kind of surface layer story and then you can kind of start to peel away what's what's hidden underneath and, and look at all these different narratives. And I think I'm always kind of hoping to do that in the stuff that I'm writing and, and kind of borrowing certain things, you know, those kind of Gothic tropes. And especially with Tangerine, I had that even more um, in mind because I had just finished my, my PhD program. So I think those just just the issues even kind of dealt within Gothic, I think, because I, I primarily looked at um, female Gothic literature yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and the ways that they essentially kind of use these spaces to to talk about things that 
I can talk about in any other way. Um, and so I think I've kind of always got that somewhere in my mind and I'm trying to kind of do that in, in my own writing. I know there's that famous list that Jane Austen makes in one of her novels of the of, of these other Gothic novels that she sort of is making fun of, but I've always felt like I really should sit down and read those. I think there's that's, seven of them, those, those novels. <laughs> that's what my thesis was about. The North oh, that's Anchor great, article. yeah. Yeah, that's what I, and I mean, they're really interesting. I mean, they're ones that a lot of them had quite a bit of success when they were actually published. Yeah. They yeah. just were completely forgotten about so that by the time even um, when Northanger Abbey was published, people didn't know they were actually real novels. Now, if you're going to write a novel that has at least a, a hint of the Gothic, you can certainly do a whole lot worse than setting it in Venice, where this yes. novel is set. Um, it's a city that I think most readers, even if they haven't been there, we have images of Venice. We have we have thoughts about it. I think I feel like it's a city that evokes emotion in a way that almost no other city does. What was it that drew you to wanting to set this novel in Venice? Venice actually, you know, it wasn't, it was not actually my first choice. Um, I wasn't, I wasn't actually sure where I wanted to kind of place um, Frankie. I knew that um, I wanted her to be from London and I knew that I wanted her to go on this kind of exodus from the city, but I wasn't sure where. And I wanted to set her somewhere that was, that was remote and isolated and kind of cut off um, from her, her life. Um, and I, I wasn't too sure. And I have a friend who is fellow academic and she specializes in um, Italian art history. And she has this kind of huge love for Venice. And she was always telling me, you need to go, you need to go. I, I'd been there once before, but just for a day trip um, and during the summer, which I think is a much different experience um, than going off season. And that's, she kind of kept telling me, you need to go when it's cold and it's dark and it's rainy and it's Gothic and, um, when I was kind of thinking of a place to put Frankie, uh, I started to remember that because this is my friend, I worked with her um, at a university in Dubai. So it had been a couple of years ago and I started to think about it and um, kind of get a sense that that might be the perfect place. So I went to Venice in the off season and kind of spent a few weeks um, and just, I mean, within a day of being there, I was kind of like, this is it. This is exactly where Frankie needs to be and just kind of spent some time um, absorbing the city as much as possible so I could reflect that in the book. Yeah. And the, and the book is set not currently in Venice, but in the, in the 1960s, mm -hmm. Venice, I mean, to a certain extent, Venice feels like a very timeless city. Yeah. You know, they're not building new skyscrapers or anything mm -hmm. in, in Venice. Like it hasn't transformed in the way that other cities have, but what, what were the challenges of setting that in that, in a time period where, you know, the city's not radically different, but surely there are some differences that you had to sort of ferret out. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, it, it is what's really nice about Venice and, and about Tangier, even in my first book. I mean, they are, yeah. there's so much there that is from the time period that I'm writing about too. And you do kind of get a sense that you're still in that time period when you're there. Um, but it definitely required uh, a bit of research um, and again, I was lucky to have a friend who's really kind of well-versed in Venice. So I could kind of go back to her and be like, is this something, you know, did they have this? Um, and then just doing research and, uh, especially cause I have featured the Aqua Alta, um, in that. And I wanted to kind of get as much right as possible and finding documents that kind of deal with, 
um, the flood and in English was definitely a challenge. Um, but I stumbled upon some, some really good stuff and I love research. I mean, that's part of the reason that, that I went and did a PhD because I love kind of, I could fall down a hole of research, I think for a very long time. I get to that point where I have to stop myself and be like, okay, enough is enough. We have, you know, enough there. Um, so yeah, it was definitely kind of going back and, and seeing, you know, what, what I could take from what I saw and then, and, and what was actually still there, like in the sixties. Yeah. I mean, I, I have said this to lots of other historical novelists too, and it, it's certainly true in my own work that the thing that I take the great greatest pleasure in is your, the way you're able to set these just minor domestic details. I mean, how did mm -hmm. you go shopping for food and what was it like yeah. to go out for a cup of coffee and, and what kind of pastries were in the, in the windows, you know, these, these sort of things really, I think, to me brought this novel to life in a, in a really wonderful way. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that's what I love. I think that's what I love in, in other novels too, is those little details. It just makes it so much more real. And I, that's why I like to actually go to the places as well. Cause I think there's some things that you just can't get, you know, you miss something if you are just kind of doing the research, but if you go there, you kind of pick up on these little things that might not pop up in a book, so. Absolutely. And I feel like, I mean, I've done that with, with my own books that I also get I just get a, an interior feel for the for the space, you know, just, I don't even quite know how to put it into words, but just uh, whether it was for me, a medieval cathedral library or the town that Jane Austen grew up in. I mean, just being able to spend time in that space, you just, did you find that, that you sort of soak in the spirit of Venice? Yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I think so. I mean, even just, you know, little things like the smells and, you know, I, things that you wouldn't necessarily think of. Um, or that you wouldn't read about elsewhere. And I stayed in um, an apartment there and it was, I, I'm not even sure what it was, but it was very old and it was definitely not um, a building that used to have a bunch of little apartments kind of um, in there. And it just, I mean, it felt like I could be, you know, I could have been in the sixties, like I could have been in the fifties. It, it did have this kind of timeless quality. And I think that just puts you in the mindset to, to write about it as well. I think too, it just kind of influences what you're sitting there um, putting onto the page. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk about Palace of the Drowned a little bit more specifically. Tell us about Frankie, um, the protagonist uh, and, and the sort of the place where she is in her life when, when the book begins. Sure. Um, Frankie is a writer. Um, and she is a writer who had uh, a good deal of success with her first novel. And she's published um, several more after that. And kind of with, with each um, publication, the interest is waning. The, the public hasn't been as responsive. The reviews, they haven't necessarily been bad, but there haven't been as many. Um, and they all kind of refer back to that first novel. And when the novel... Um, Palace of the Drowned starts. She's just published her most recent one and it has not gone down well. And she's received um, a review that's really thrown her. And there's been an incident because of that uh, in London that um, essentially prompts her to want to leave the city. And she wants to go somewhere where she can essentially kind of regroup and, and you know, get back to writing and kind of get back to um, 
essentially what she felt when she wrote that first novel, because that's kind of what's missing. And she even acknowledges that she doesn't feel that same sense of, of urgency to kind of put words um, down onto the paper that she did that first time around. And she's been kind of encouraged by others to continue. And she's found a, a little bit of the solace she's looking for um, in Venice. Um, and that's kind of broken um, when she runs into uh, Gilly, another character who um, essentially pops up claiming that she knows Frankie from, from London. And Frankie's kind of thrown by the fact that you know, she has London essentially intruding on her life when she's not quite prepared for that. Um, and she's also thrown by Gilly herself because she doesn't remember her. She doesn't recognize her. And she has this kind of feeling that that she's not telling her the truth and that they don't actually know one another. Yeah, I, I, I like the, the sort of trajectory of, of Frankie's career because I think we've all been in that place where we've had to make that transition from I'm just a person who's desperately trying to write a novel that somebody yeah. will like yes. to okay, now I'm a novelist and people yeah. just expect me to write novels, you know, and, and when you, I'm sure you've had that experience too. Well, I mean, what was that transition like for you from, from, you know, being somebody who's just trying to write a book to suddenly now everybody thinks of you as a novelist? It's very strange. It's yeah. still very strange. I mean, it is, it's kind of, um, I, it seems strange that that's what I do now and that I'm, I'm very happy and grateful for that, that I'm able to, to do that. But I mean, it is kind of um, a strange thing to kind of explain in a strange thing where, I mean, it's something very private to sit down and write a novel, but yeah. you know that in the end it's going to go out in the public and be read and examined and reviewed by all these people. So it is, it's just kind of a very strange um, thing. And I think that's kind of, one of the things that Frankie is is dealing with and that I wanted yeah, to explore yeah. that moment when the manuscript is essentially no longer your own you know it's it's out there whether it's in the hands of your editor who's making suggestions or it's out there in the public and people are um kind of giving their own opinion about what it's about and you know whether or not they liked it and so that that kind of strange relationship between a writer and their work was one of the things that I really wanted to to take a look at in this I think I think we have there's a temptation, and it's not necessarily a bad temptation. I've certainly succumbed to it uh, as as writers to, to create a protagonist who is also a writer because we understand that that life in that world. Um, but can you talk a little bit about uh, both the perils and the possibilities of of casting your main character as a novelist? Yeah, I mean, it's for Frankie, it it seemed kind of the right thing to do. And I liked the idea of kind of her struggling um, with with what she's writing, with what, you know, she's reviewing. But then it's a weird thing because it's, you know, as a writer, it feels kind of strange to write about it. And um, I think people will try to look for what's real, you know, what's, what's yeah, sure. what you're drawing from essentially um, from, from your own life. And I think that, I think that's the only moment of hesitancy I had in terms of having Frankie be a writer and having her um, kind of dealing with uh, reviews, essentially. And, it, you know, it is kind of a, a weird thing. And I'm sure um, and people have even commented, you know, I wondered, oh, this seemed real. You had to have been this yourself. And it's I mean, it's kind of an off putting thing. You know, people are always kind of looking for those real moments. And so um, 
I think that was the only kind of hesitation that, that I experienced in, in terms of, I was, you know, do I want to go down this path? Do I want to open myself up to this? Um, but in the end, it just kind of, that felt right for Frankie and, and what I wanted to do with, with the book. So Frankie does talk about reading her reviews and making it a mm -hmm. habit to read her reviews. But of course, Frankie was living in the days before Goodreads and, you yes. know, Amazon and everybody's ability to just review you right and left. Uh, yeah. What do you what do you think in this day and age is a is a reasonable and healthy relationship between a novelist and the world of her reviews? I struggle with that. I, I really I don't read any of them. I don't want to. It makes me very anxious. I think it's not even the review itself. I think um, I have an anxiety with just kind of knowing that that it's out there and that people are reading it and thinking yeah. about it. And it, it's just a very kind of nerve wracking, uh, off-putting experience. Um, but I am fascinated by it at the same time. And I looked at that a lot um, in my PhD work, actually. I looked at the way um, a lot of the writers were kind of influenced essentially by the reviewers because uh, they knew that that could make or break them in terms of sales. And I looked at one woman who she was, um, she was a widow and she was a mother of eight children. And you can see that she loved writing, that that was what she wanted to do. But she would craft these author notes in each of her novels saying, you know, I only do this because I'm destitute, because this is the only way I can make my living. I have to, you know, take care of these children. And it wasn't really true. And, it, yeah. you know, you got the sense when you look at other things that she wrote that it that it wasn't really how she felt, but she knew kind of how to play the game. And the reviewers did look at her a bit more favorably than they did um, other novelists of her time. Yeah. So it's, a, it's an interesting kind of I don't know. I don't know how people do. I could never go on to Goodreads or to Amazon and look at this stuff. Like, I just, I don't no, think, no, you I, I know I would never do it. I just don't have, I think the mental uh, headspace for that. Um, but even, I, I, I don't know. I also took, I remember in college taking a course called the art of reviewing. And it was interesting kind of looking at it as this thing that is its own art form and, and what goes into it. And to look at prominent reviewers that have, you know, existed throughout time in the re reviews that they've written. So, I mean, there is something there and it is very interesting. Um, but I think as a writer, I just don't think that I'd have room for those voices in my head. If I looked, if I looked at it, I think it would influence too much of what of what I would do. I mean, I think for Frankie, maybe, and that's certainly probably the case for for all of us. There, one of the things about the reviews is that it's just this tangible proof that a total stranger has spent eight or ten hours inside your head. I mean, mm -hmm. we know that's what we're doing, but to yeah. see that tangible proof of it, is, do you think that's one of the things that kind of affects? Because Frankie, in many ways, is a very private person. She has sort of one friend, and and you know, very little in the way of, of family. And this notion that she has chosen a career that invites the invasion of that privacy, uh, just, it fascinates me. Yeah, I, it's, it's a strange kind of thing for her because she is so private. And I think that she's also, she's very strong, you know, and she, I, I got that, this bit in the beginning that she likes to read the reviews, you know, she likes to kind of see 
what's there so that she can learn and she can, you know, kind of correct the things that maybe aren't, aren't working so well. Um, but it is this one review um, that really unsettles her because it kind of touches upon, I think, her worst fears and especially yeah. in that moment. Um, you know, she's worried that her publishing company is not too interested in her anymore, that they're kind of turning away um, towards other maybe younger writers and all of that, you know, is kind of embodied in this review that, you know, everything she kind of worries about. And and so I think it's it's enough in that moment in her life to kind of just completely um, undo her essentially. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that hangs over this novel in a, in a subtle way, but it's there nonetheless, is the shadow of World War II. Um, and we see it specifically in, in this air raid whistle that, that Frankie carries with her almost as a talisman, you know. Um, and, and certainly in, in Europe in the 1960s, the, the shadows of World War II were still quite long. Can, can you talk about how you use the, that, that referencing of the war in, in the narrative? Yeah, I, it's kind of, it's, it's always there and it's always present for Frankie, but it is in the background, it's in the past. Um, but it's something that kind of essentially haunts her. And it is in a way part of the kind of trouble that she has with Gilly because they are coming from two different generations. And for Frankie, you know, she's lived through these really difficult things. She um, made it through the war. She lost her parents along the way. Uh, she kind of had to carve out this career for herself. And, you know, she remembers long nights, you know, writing and not having enough money to feed the meter for heat and, and things like that. And then you get this young, bright, pretty thing who kind of walks into her life and um, doesn't have that, that haunting, essentially, you know, of, of the past of having lived through um, this war. And she's kind of unencumbered by that. And she's... Um, also we find out interested in becoming a writer as well and and kind of okay with relying on connections um, to get her there rather than kind of that that hard work that Frankie has put into it. Um, and so I think a lot of that, I, I mean, it really, it, it's built who Frankie is as a character um, and it also kind of pushes forward those, those issues that keep arising between her and Gilly because they kind of go through this this up and down in their relationship where you know she thinks she's okay with her she thinks she's okay um with these differences uh and then it's just something happens and all of this kind of comes up again and and it's just too much it's it's too much for her to overcome uh, one of the other things that that sort of peeks its way into this novel is this question of I mean, we could say sort of broadly mental health, but but there's there's sometimes questions like is is Frankie sane? Like, is there somebody living in the house next door or not? Did she really write these pages of a new novel or not? What? How did she? Why did she act the way she did in London? Does she really know Gilly or doesn't she know Gilly? You know, and I I like the way you sort of play with those those edges. Can you can you talk a little bit about how you sort of plant these seeds in the reader's mind about how? whether or not we should really trust Frankie. Yeah, I, I was very conscious of that. I, I wanted there to be this, this doubt um, because she has gone through this fairly traumatic incident when we meet her. She has, you know, spent some time 
um, essentially in a sanatorium, kind of trying yeah. to to rid herself of of memories of of what's happened. Um, and so she, you know, is carrying all of that with her. It's it's that it's the scars of the past. Um, and so I wanted these things to kind of slowly build. You know, you have kind of the goings on next door. You don't really know. Is there somebody that, somebody there? Is there somebody not? Um, you know, she has this book that she's been working on uh, eventually in Venice. Even her best friend Jack doubts that that, that is actually real. Um, and I wanted to kind of play around with that notion because she is someone who is struggling in that moment. And I think it kind of adds... Um, something, another layer to it where you don't know, you know, how much you can trust Frankie. You don't know how much you can um, believe her. And she has moments of doubts too, where she wonders oh, yeah. About yeah. certain things, you know, she questions her own sanity. Um, and so that's certainly at the forefront of it as she kind of moves through these different events. Um, and again, it's just kind of one thing after the other and, and how much can she really take before um, she completely you know, breaks down from it. And, and so I always wanted there to be this kind of lingering doubt, even though she is strong, she is resilient. Um, she has been through some stuff that has, has, has changed her. Yeah. Yeah. And I think also there's this pull between how she sees herself and how others see her. And this, almost this notion that like, if enough people say that you're insane, then you, you must be, I mean, what, what is the definition of, you know, you almost get at the definite, what's the definition of sanity? Is it, you know, if somebody else says that everybody else says that the moon is green and you say it's not, well, then you must be the one who's crazy. You know, it's, it's she kind of is in that, that space at, at, at a point, really not knowing uh, whether to trust her own perception or the perceptions of other people. Yeah. And we have Jack, of course, her best friend, who's, who's always kind of hovering, <laughs> yeah. uh, trying to, to make sure that she's okay. And it does kind of stress the fact that, you know, Frankie is not okay and that there is stuff going on that, that she can't just brush off. Um, so it is kind of a question throughout, you know, just just how well she is coping. Um, and of course her actions throughout it kind of make the reader question that even more. Yeah. One of the other relationships that that uh, is in the novel is one that, that you and I have, have both had and that is the one between author and editor. Um, and, and Frankie, although for a lot of the novel, she's in Venice and her, her editor's back in London and they don't, but they, they begin to interact a little bit more later in the novel. Um, but can, can you talk about, about their relationship a little bit? And, and again, about what you see as the sort of ideal author editor relationship? Yeah. Um, I, so Frankie, her relationship with her editor is it's one where they're very close. You know, she refers to him almost as though he's a family member, but they do have these fights. They do have these arguments and she is obviously grateful for him and for, you know, starting her career, but there's a bit of resentment as well. Um, she doesn't want his help so much, you know, she, and it, it's, it's kind of one of those things that probably defines her as a character too. She doesn't want people's help. She wants people to do it on her, on her own. And, um, there's a line earlier in the book where it kind of um, acknowledges that her editor kind of had a big hand in uh, the ending of her book. And she's kind of harbored this resentment towards him um, ever since, because she took the suggestion, you know, she was happy at the time. Um, but then there's this kind of 
blurring of lines, you know, who's responsible for this book, you know, how much of it is hers, how much of it, of it is him. Um, and so she kind of struggles with that. And so the relationship um, when we see them here, it's a bit fractured, you know, he's there, he's helping her through this, this moment in her life, but at the same time, um, he's expecting that, that next book and he wants to get it published. And so there is this kind of um, push and pull between them. Um, I'm trying to think of how to kind of talk about it without giving away too much. No, I, I mean, I think you're, yeah. you, you've done a good job of that. And I think that, you know, we've all had, I'm sure you have had this too. We all have places in our novel where the editor came up with a great idea. Yeah. Um, yeah. The difference is that Harold kind of goes out there and like takes, Tell tries people. to take credit yeah. instead of yeah. just being happy that, that he got thanked in the acknowledgements, which is usually the, and, yes. I, and I've always felt, I mean, I'll say I've sometimes felt a little guilty that like my, name is the only name that appears on the title page like a lot of people help this thing become a book you know it is, it's um, a really weird thing and I mean that's one of the things I wanted to look at as well it's a strange thing because it goes through I mean I show it to my partner I get edits sure. there yeah. you know I show it to my agent I show it to my editor um, and by the time it's published it's very different than what I started out absolutely with. Yeah. 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 yeah and it's a strange thing because I do think people think that you just sit there you write it it's done yeah it gets published. Cause even when I sold um, my first novel, people were like, oh, is it coming out next month? I'm like, next month, no, <laughs> yeah. no. <laughs> like there's a lot to be done. There's a lot of work. I don't think people know how many revisions go into it. Yeah, yeah. So. Um, you, you know, you have these two main characters, Frankie and, and Gilly, and as you say, they're from different, two different generations. Um, I, I love the fact that even though I, we, I think Gilly is probably in her early 20s, frankly, always refers to her as the girl, you know. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, but in thinking about the qualities of character in young women versus older women, Frankie says this. She says, now instead of competent, she was labeled as stubborn. Instead of independent, she was a spinster. Do you think it's still the case that attributes that we admire in the young and in particular in young women are then looked at as negative attributes as as we get older? I do think to a certain extent, yes. Um, and I was actually, I was thinking of that because I have another line in the book where Frankie kind of, you know, is looking at herself and thinking about how other people see her. And she makes a comment that people, you know, wouldn't love Ophelia half so much if she was yeah. older and, right. and and mad and they would just look at her as kind of an inconvenience. And so I do kind of think that there are certain things that um, when you're younger are maybe admired and romanticized. And then, you know, when you get to Frankie's age, the fact that she is so headstrong, you know, it is looked at, it, she's difficult and she's, you know, um, someone that people find rather frustrating. Whereas, um, you know, she looks at Gilly and she sees some of these same qualities and she recognizes that they have a lot of similarities. And I think that's one of the things that, again, makes their relationship so contentious is the fact that um, she is in this moment in her life where you, she's, I think Harold says to her at one point, um, you're not a debut writer anymore. You know, you're past that stage. And it's kind of um, thrown her and made her a bit, a bit bitter as well, because, you know, she is who she is. It's how she's always been. Um, but it's kind of society and the expectations of, of who she should be as, as a woman in the sixties that, that are kind of changing. She has not. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Frankie recalls 
when she's writing her first novel, she recalls writing it in what she calls one long, exhaustive week, um, which really struck me because I'm reading another uh, novel right now that's coming out in November where there's a character who's a novelist who wrote his first novel in, I think it's like a spurt of 34 days or something. So I, I, I'm detecting this, this theme that, that, you know, sometimes that first novel does, it's been building up inside of you and it comes out, you know, sort of all at once. What, what's that process like for you? What is, what's it like from, we've talked a little bit about how you go from your, your draft through your agent and your editor, and, but what's it like getting from that blank page to, okay, now I've, now I've got a full draft? It's a lot longer process than, yeah. than Frankie does. More than a week. Yeah, yeah more than a week. Um, I tend to take notes and um, write actually in a journal um, first, and I kind of, do it for as long as I can where I know there's enough there that it makes sense to sit down in front of a computer. Mm -hmm. um, so I get as much going kind of on paper as possible. And then I sit down and start typing everything up um, and see where I'm at essentially. Then I, I try to, I guess the new stuff, everything that I'm creating, I try to put on paper that works better for me. When I get to the computer, it's more of not just editing, um, but kind of seeing where, okay, here's what I'm missing, you know, fill in the blanks here, things like that. But I definitely, um, when I'm writing something new, I try to stay away from the computer as much as possible because I just, I'm, I think I'm, I'm not great at sitting in front of a computer and kind of trying to visualize the story. Yeah. Right. And so I mean, from there, then it takes, you know, quite a while. I, I do, I will say I write, I do a lot of revisions. I do yeah. a lot of revising. Frankie says something to Gilly that I found particularly revealing, I think of both of them in a way. Um, she says, friends are overrated. What, what does she mean by that? I think that for Frankie, um, she spent a large portion of her life by herself. Um, and she has had Jack. And, and yeah. that is kind of, you know, the one person that, that she turns to. Um, but I think that Frankie is, again, she's very stubborn. And she's very much someone who wants to get things done on her own and doesn't want to kind of have to lean on other people. I think she, she mentions, you know, that, that there were times when she wanted Jack by her side, um, but she didn't need her. She never felt like she needed her. And so it, it's this kind of um, continual thing with Frankie that she wants to be able to kind of do things on her own. She doesn't want to have to, to ask for help. And so I think she kind of views other people as, as not really necessary, something she doesn't need in order to survive. But of course, you know, Jack really is that kind of one exception to the rule. Yeah, let's talk about Jack for a minute because they're, um, I mean, this is in some ways almost a classic opposites attract kind of um, yeah. relationship. You know, Frankie is is pretty introverted and private and Jack is, you know, very bubbly. And so so talk about, about their relationship and tell us a little bit about the character of Jack. Jack is um, essentially an heiress. <laughs> And I mean, that is, uh, it's kind of a strange thing that they've, that they've even met, but it was um, before she was a novelist, Frankie was kind of writing things for a paper and, you know, she happened to be at a party where Jack was and 
um, Jack kind of defied all expectations of what, you know, she had in mind of what someone like that would be like. Um, and so they have kind of been there for one another throughout the years. And Frankie is a very solitary person and Jack um, has been not a solitary person. She's very bubbly, you know, she's around a lot of people, but, you know, she had kind of, um, when they were becoming friends and throughout the years always said, well, I don't ever want to get married. I don't ever want to have children. And um, and so they've built this bond kind of on that, on the two of them, you know, versus the rest of the world. And yeah. when the novel starts out, there's a bit of um, some issues with them because Jack has just married um, and things have started to, to change in their relationship. And Frankie feels like she has been kind of pushed aside um, by by Jack's husband. And so when everything kind of happens, Jack is there for her and she's supportive, but the relationship is kind of changed and altered and it's it's not quite what it was. Um, I, I'm sure like me, you've spoken to lots of readers. You've spoken to book clubs. Uh, you've done book events. Frankie has, I think, some interesting thoughts about readers and their relationship to writers and and to the text she says this she says let the reader decide for themselves what they felt what they took away from the text let them wrestle within their own mind over such ambiguous things as meaning for you what's the what's a good relationship between reader text and author i find it really interesting um i think sometimes i tend to write rather ambiguously. It's sometimes too much where, where you know, my, my editor will be like, no, nobody's getting this. You know, you have to kind of um, give some more clues as to what's going on. But I like the idea of being able to kind of decide things for yourself as a reader. And I think that goes back to my PhD work because it's just, I mean, that's essentially what I was doing. And I find it interesting. I think this is the thing about reviews too, is I find it interesting because in the review, it's not just, you know, did you like it? Did you not like it? But it's also what it's about. And yeah. um, you're interpreting the author's words. And, you know, sometimes you kind of get in this mindset where you're like, no, that's not what I wrote. That's not what I meant at all. But, yeah. but at the same time, you can't really say, well, no, because that's what the reader has interpreted. And that's what they've, you know, taken away. And I often think, I mean, in my PhD work, I was writing about 18th century authors so they couldn't really argue back but yeah. I do think you know if they ever read what I wrote would they just be absolutely baffled and horrified and and think that like I completely you know made things up and um so I think it's an interesting thing but I like the idea of of kind of leaving readers to to walk away with with what they do because I mean I've even had people tell me like oh I loved when you did this and you know you did this and you were trying to do this and it you know all these things and I just had this moment of that's not what I was doing at all, but you don't want to say, you know, you don't want to be like, no, you've read it wrong. So I think you can read things differently. And, and I mean, that's, that's the great thing I think about books and reading um, that perhaps not everyone will walk away with, you know, the same yeah. meanings, but, but it's, it's kind of left open for you to decide. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a reminder for all of us that that writing the book is just the first half of that yeah. creative process. Mm -hmm. But it is it is fun when somebody comes up to you and says, "Oh, I'm so glad somebody wrote, finally wrote a novel about such and such." And you're like, "Oh, who was that?" You know, no, I was talking about yours. 
<laughs> yes. Well, Frankie goes on after the line I just quoted um, to explain, and I'm going I'm to quote here again. She had never understood the idea of reading an, undeniable so an undeniably solitary act as a collective experience. Now, she's writing in, in the 1960s, but since this time, we've had this proliferation of, of book clubs and author tours and book festivals and sites like Goodreads, all of which, in one way or another, are seeking to build community around this solitary act of reading. Um, mm -hmm. So I guess my question is, can reading be a collective experience? I, I mean, it definitely, and people are anxious to, to do that, which is kind of interesting and exciting. You know, I mean, they want to kind of share um, what they took away from it and what they think about it. And, and I mean, I like that idea. I don't, I don't know if I could ever do a book club. I think I'd, I'd feel, I don't know. I don't know if I could. Um, I'd feel too self-conscious, I think, in terms of, again, you know, what if I came to the, to the table with something completely different that nobody else picked up on? But I do think it's um, a really fun thing. I mean, when I was, when I was in Dubai, um, my friend who helped me with all the, the Venetian stuff, um, she was a big reader and we kind of like to read the same things. And some of the best memories I have are sitting outside kind of sweltering in the heat um, and just talking about the books that, that we had read. And I mean, sometimes we took away very different things from them and, you know, didn't agree, but it was, it was nice. It was a nice experience to have, to be able to kind of share that with someone. Cause when you do feel so passionately about something, having to keep that just to yourself, it's almost kind of anticlimactic at the end, you know, <laughs> you look around, you're done with this book and you have nobody to, to talk to about it. So I can understand wanting, wanting to share. Yeah. And it seems to me like certainly more than ever before in history, readers have a chance to, to move beyond the text, whether it's in a book club or, listening to a podcast they can they can tweet to the author you know they can uh they there, there's just so many ways that now that we can interact with and move beyond text that that weren't available even 10 or 15 years ago and certainly not in the 1960s when frankie is writing well we like to end every episode of inside the writer's studio with the same 10 questions uh, you should be able to answer each of them in just a few words, but hopefully they'll give our listeners a little insight into writing and into you and your process. So if you're ready, we will begin. Sure. What word do you love to work into your writing? I have. <laughs> um, there are words that I don't mean to work into my writing. For everything I write, there's always one word that I somehow become obsessed with. And I literally have to go back in and delete it all out. <laughs> when I do the word count for it, it is staggering and slightly, it, it's not good. So I'll have to go back and take it out. So I think it depends on what I'm writing, but right. there's always one word. Yeah. What word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? Oh, I don't know. I, I, I think like pop culture references, things like that. I, I don't know why it just, it'll, it takes me out of the book a little bit. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I would say those. I'm not, I'm not fond of that. Where's your favorite place to write? Uh, in a coffee shop, which mm. right now is not possible yeah. one day. Where could you never write? I'm very bad. I'm good at, I'm good at revising, but I'm very bad at writing just sitting at a desk like in my house or wherever I am living. Um, yeah. 
I don't do well with that. Yeah. Uh, to what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? Oh gosh, <laughs> <laughs> probably my use of um, commas and dashes. <laughs> I'm okay. quite obsessive with those. What was the first book you remember reading? It's probably not the, oh man, I don't know the first book. Like picture book with yeah. very few words. I remember one and I couldn't even tell you the title, but it was about a boy who ran away from home and he built this like elaborate place for himself. And then slowly all the children in that same town joined him and built their own elaborate houses that kind of spoke to them um, and that they weren't allowed to do within the confines of their parents' home. <laughs> I think that's one of the first like books that I remember. Okay, listeners, you need to tell us what book that is. It sounds yeah. good. <laughs> um, what book are, what are you reading now? I, I'm in between. I literally just finished a book called um, The Second Woman, which is by a French author. And I don't, it's, I don't think it's out yet. I think it's coming out this fall. Um, and I highly recommend it. It was, it's a, it's a psychological thriller, but a little bit um, more than that. And it kind of takes that Gothic trope of, of the first dead wife haunting the second. And then the first wife comes back and she's got all her memories of what happened. And it, it's quite good. Yeah, yeah. What book would you like to have written? Oh gosh, so many. I, I don't even, I'm trying to think. Um, I, I'm trying, like, I have that experience a lot where I read something and I'm like, I wish this is what I would have done. Um, I am a huge fan of anything by Sarah Waters. I absolutely love her books. Um, I love those, you know, oh, I love her books. I would, I would say something like that and then, um, also a huge fan of Louise May Alcott and all of her gothic oh, yeah. tales. I love all of those. Yeah, yeah. What sort of book would you like to write, but probably never will? Probably, you know, I tried for a long time to kind of write um, a more historical um, drama kind of influenced by um, my grandpa's experiences in World War II. And I just, it just never, I feel like I can never really give the, the proper um, weight to it that it probably deserves. Mm -hmm. And finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? Oh, I don't know. Um, that they enjoyed the book so much they read it twice. Oh. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> this has been Inside the Writer Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and my guest today has been Christine Mangan, whose novel Palace of the Drowned is available wherever books are sold. Christine, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Inside the Writer's Studio is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. Inside the Writer's Studio is proud to be affiliated with Libro FM. Unlike other audiobook platforms, Libro FM supports your local independent bookstore. Whether you buy a single book or, like me, a monthly subscription, you can link your account to your local store or to bookmarks to support literary community. For a special two-for-one offer, go to Libro.fm and use the discount code WRITERS. If you've enjoyed Inside the Writer's Studio, please consider leaving a rating or review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside the Writer's Studio posts new episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month. 
In our next episode, I'll be talking to screenwriter and novelist Paul Rudnick about his new novel, Playing the Palace. Until then, thanks for listening. And may you read with wonder and write with passion.